On this episode of Cinema Smorgasbord Presents Bartell Me Something Good, we'll be discussing Paul Bartell's New World Pictures directorial debut, Death Race 2000, a riotously campy science fiction action satire based on a short story by Eve Melchior. Another edition of Bartell Me Something Good, a podcast about the life and work of actor and filmmaker Paul Bartell. I'm your host, Adriana Gober, and I'm once again joined by my brothers in Bartelldom, Liam O'Donnell and Doug Tilly. Uh, how are you guys doing in this uh, dystopian wasteland of North America <laughs> we call home? <laughs> I am yet again struck by how much I like the name of this podcast. I like the names of all of me and Doug's uh, uh, Sports World podcast, but this one, every time I say it, you say it, anyone says it, I'm like, <laughs> it just makes me so happy. And I know that that's really corny to say, but it's just true. It makes me very happy. I'm just glad that you both share my affinity for puns. Yeah. <laughs> we, we sure do. I have to say, Liam, there are certain shows that on the Cinema Smorgasbord Network that I no longer like the name of. <laughs> and I wish that we could change them. This is not one of them. I absolutely do love name this. Name names, and, Doug. Name names. Which one? I mean, I I would never. Uh, who, who do I look like? Uh, Elliot Kazan? Uh, but no, I think I will, <laughs> now that now that I think about it, say that I don't like We Do Our Own Stunts as a name for a Jackie Chan podcast. Oh, no, I love that name. No, I don't like it. And I also wish that we did not, and this is my fault entirely, uh, make the Steve Buscemi podcast a uh, name based on the meme from 30 Rock. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Why that? Because you, you find the meme embarrassing now? No, I don't find the meme embarrassing. It just feels it feels like such a specific moment in terms of his recognizability in the world compared to the scope of his entire career, which is what we're trying to sort of capture in it. Also, I feel like when I tell people this is a podcast called this, outside of the context of the image, like the meme image of him with the skateboard and stuff, it doesn't necessarily register with people as well. Uh, so, I mean, at least with We Do Our Own Sons, it's like, oh, okay, I get it. A Jackie Chan podcast called that. That sort of makes sense. How do you do, fellow kids? It just doesn't – it's not It's not as fun for me. That's interesting. I have not had that experience. Um, in fact, it's I've had – almost entirely recognition when I've told people that's the name of it. And the reason I feel a little better about it is because he won't leave the meme alone. It would be different if he had say, moved on with yeah. his life. But he, he continues just to dressed go back up there. as himself in 30 Rock for Halloween. Yeah. So yeah. I will I will straight up say, and this is to your credit, Adriana, the only name of any of our shows I like more than Joe Dawowski is Bartell Me Something Good. Yeah. It's the it's well, the other one. Uh, and then number three would be Praising Kane. I love Praising Kane. I think <laughs> Praising it's really Kane that, is that's actually a good one too. I I have to say I fucking love Praising Kane as a name, and it, it, I feel embarrassed that I would never have come up with that. That is like the perfect name for that show. <laughs> I'm thinking about it right now, and I'm getting so happy, Liam. And I'm also <laughs> happy because we're here to talk about Death Race 2000, the movie I am most familiar with in Paul Bartel's filmography. Yeah, that's probably the same for me too. Um... I've seen pretty much everything he's directed, but I think this is the one that I've seen the most. It's odd to say, but even though I love Eating Raul and I've seen it many times, 
the movies he made immediately after that, or like in the, in the following five years, are the ones I'm least familiar with, and are the ones that I'm most excited about, kind of 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 uh, covering on this podcast. I'm the same as you guys, only it's the only one of his films that I was familiar with. <laughs> um, and, and what's funny is... Well, you've I, seen some of that he's been in. Sure. Well, that's what I was going to say, though. What this, what the suggestion of us doing this podcast did for me was allow me to realize that um, Paul Bartel, the actor, who when I saw a picture, I thought, yes, I know immediately who that is, and I can name a lot of movies he's appeared in, if only briefly, I had no idea that he was also the director of Death Race 2000, let alone right. Eating Raul, a movie I've heard of but had never seen, or Private Parts, which, as we discussed on that episode, I've seen that trailer at least 100 times. I've seen it played <laughs> at various festivals so many times I've seen that trailer, and yet I've always wanted to see the movie. had no idea it was a Paul Bartel movie. Like This podcast has been such a revelation for me that this actor who I – I'm familiar with his face, at least, uh, even if I don't know uh, any uh, that many of his like bigger roles, um, that he's also this director who is a director of one of the first cult films I ever saw, Death Race 2000. You know, uh, since the last time we recorded Bartell Me Something Good, we've actually covered a film on one of our other podcasts that feature uh, features Paul Bartell in an acting role, uh, Alan Arkish's Get Crazy, which we did for our... You don't know Dick, uh, Dick Miller podcast. Uh, so uh, maybe something we'll, we'll cover well, well into the future since it's just a Paul Bartel acting role. I do think on our most recent episode, I was a little unfair in describing Paul Bartel as a performer. Maybe he has a very distinct acting style and it's very broad. And But the more that I see of him perform, it just reminds me of what a kind of pleasure it is to see him both appear, but also that he... he actually is a quality actor. And I think that's something we'll get into a lot more once we get to eating Raul and we see him kind of take the lead. Um, so before we really start our discussion of Death Race 2000 in earnest, I kind of wanted to just hear a little bit about um, your history with this movie. If you can remember like when the first time you saw it was or what the circumstances were. Uh, for me, um, I saw it when I was a teenager and... I was just immediately dialed into its frequency. Like, I absolutely <laughs> loved it, and I still love it. Um, you know, it has this very camp sensibility. It's like wacky races on poppers. Um, you know, I love the morbid humor, and I think it's really funny. And it's a sharp satire that has only become more relevant and incisive as the years have gone by. You know, Americans love violence. You know, whether that's yeah, as spectators passively passively absorbing it in our media or in the news. And so it makes total sense to turn it into a literal spectator sport. And, uh, yeah, it's just a really smart and fun movie. And I'm kind of I'm really curious, curious to hear your thoughts on it. I, I distinctly remember the first time I watched Death Race 2000. I think I may have heard about it or, and read about it first. It did seem like one of those movies that I would have had some sort of you know, you would have heard about it by reputation in the mid to late 90s. And I remember I stayed up and watched it on a pay television station. It might have been first choice here in Canada. And my memory tells me that there was, there was some sort of host segment. Like it, it, it actually has had someone hosting it and maybe giving a little bit of trivia about it. And this would have been probably 96, 97, something like that. And I watched it, and I was transfixed the entire time. Uh, the only thing I remember about these host segments is the 
revelation, I don't even know if it's accurate, that in the sequence where the mechanic gets its head, his head run over by the car, that it was a watermelon that was used. And uh, I, I was just like, I need like I need a copy of this movie to own. I think I may have taped it off the television as well so I could rewatch it. The thing I do remember about like a permanent copy is in the early-ish days of DVD, I spent an inordinate amount of money for me at that time, which would have been probably like $35 on a DVD of Death Race 2000 that I was saddened to discover once I got it home was uh, not even widescreen. It was four by three and did not even look that great either. It was just a junky, cheapo DVD that I paid out the butt for. But hey, I still watch the hell out of it. This is a movie that I've seen in the in terms of the the grand catalog of movies that I've watched in my lifetime, this is probably in the top 10% of movies I've watched the most. I've probably seen it 15 times. And it's one of those movies where I don't need to see it to remember how much I love it and to remember all of the things about it I love. But going back to revisit it, there's always something I knew, knew I pick up on it, especially, you know, with a better appreciation of some of the people involved. I think I first saw it, if I remember correctly, I think I first saw it as a kid... Not a kid, but like a, a teenager, but I had didn't know anything about it. I just saw the name and thought, okay, that sounds cool. That sounds like something I could get into. And I liked it, but I was not expecting it to be as campy and fun as it was. Right. Mm-hmm. So at like, I don't know, maybe 15, 16, I just was like, okay, that's cool. But, uh, you know, like it, it, it didn't immediately become my favorite movie, but I definitely – found it very enjoyable um and immediately understood that it there was like uh there was a kind of satire of violence going on that i really appreciated but i also thought well like um i felt i had a little bit of mixed emotions about because i'm like i kind of like violence like you know like (laughs) is this should i feel bad you know you know um well, I mean, it very much is one of those, you know, have its cake and eat it too. How mm-hmm. dare you Americans enjoy violence? Anyway, here's a very violent movie to shame you about it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then as as uh, I started getting back, you know, started getting more into cult films, I realized that, oh, okay, this is a movie that people talk about a lot. And I gave it another view, probably like um, just after college. And the campiness of it um, – really resonated with me a lot more and I, and I started to feel a lot of affection for it but I also started to realize it was very popular um, and I, I described you guys off mic but I want to be clear like I had a little bit of like a too cool like oh yeah this, that movie's cool but I you know I thought I'd find something a little less known because it was really starting to become popular and then in you guys remember 2008 there was that horrible death race movie oh we'll talk about it (laughs) yeah 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 and um you know that sort of made me go back to the original and be like no this is this is a very solid movie and just a couple years later i discovered that susan had never even heard of the movie let alone seen it because uh, a friend of ours was talking about how he thought people were being too hard on Death Race, you know, that it really wasn't that bad. And I, I was mm. like, this person is a crazy person. And Susan's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I showed her Death Race, and it immediately, Death Race 2000 rather, and it immediately clicked with her like, oh, okay, this is great. This is a lot of fun. I understand what this is. Um, but so that's maybe like three times then. And I haven't gone back to it. And even though I appreciate the film, I kind of wish, Doug, I was more in your camp where it was like something in my rewatch camp and i don't know if that's access i don't own a copy of the movie but i think it's more that 
it it always struck me as a little bit obvious and that's unfair because it's so good and I'm watching it for this recording I was reminded like god I I actually fucking love this movie I I should make this like a maybe not yearly but yeah maybe yearly watch just to be like I need to watch Death Race 2000 again that movie is fucking great Well I'm glad you've seen the light Liam <laughs> I like I said I always liked it but I I think I need to move it into one of my favorite categories again because I, I like I said there was just something I, I think I just have that bad personality trait where it's like, ugh, everybody likes Death Race 2000. And which is like, A, not true. And B, not fair. Because that doesn't mean I don't also love it, you know. Death Race 2000 is your London calling as opposed to all the Sandinistas that you're out there watching. <laughs> I love That is such a f- stupid reference, but I love it. It's very good. <laughs> uh, before we get into Death Race 2000... I have something I want to plug really quick that might be of interest to our listeners. Um, so Friends of the Pod, Garrett Smith and Tori Potenza have a really great podcast called Killer Bees. And in each episode profiles a different beloved genre actor um, doing a deep dive into their careers, covering some of their best known films as well as some deep cuts. Uh, and the latest episode is on Paul Bartel. And it's well worth the listen you can find their show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the other usual places. So check that out. Support good people doing good work. And now, gentlemen, start your engines for the death race. The year 2000. America is a vast speedway. People line the streets to witness the greatest drivers on earth in a race from sea to shining sea. This is a death race. You finish first. Or not at all. Death Race 2000. Every car a deadly weapon. Every spectator a potential point. It's a cross-country road wreck, and the traffic is murder. Who are you, anyway? Best driver on earth. I don't want you to die. He was built by the world's finest surgeons to drive the fastest car ever designed, and nothing can stop him now. Death Race 2000, rated R. In a dystopian future, a cross-country automobile race requires contestants to run down innocent pedestrians to gain points that are tallied based on each kill's brutality. That's the plot of Death Race 2000, released in 1975 and distributed by New World Pictures. Uh, the list of names associated with this movie is quite impressive once you look at it. Um, it's, of course, directed by Paul Bartel, with a screenplay by Charles B. Griffith, uh, with an earlier draft penned by Robert Tom. It's edited by Tina Hirsch. The cinematography is by Tak Fujimoto, one of my favorite cinematographers. And then I'm not going to go through the entire cast list, but I just want to highlight some of the uh, you know, the the main cast, we've got David Carradine as Frankenstein, Simone Griffith as his navigator, Annie Smith, Sylvester Stallone in one of, one of his earliest film appearances. And you just have an assortment of other um, smaller parts, Don Steele as one of the race announcers, Jun- Junior Bruce, uh, Paul Bortel has a cameo as a surgeon towards the beginning of the film. We see John Landis pop up in a cameo. Notably, Paul Bartel's sister is in here as well. Oh, Wendy Bartel. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a whole slew of interesting people. Before we kind of start 
sharing like our general thoughts and impressions on the movie, I kind of want to talk to talk a bit about the, the the background, the genesis of the film. So, the story goes that Roger Corman heard that United Artists were developing a movie based on William Harrison's short story Rollerball Murder, which you could probably guess that eventually became Rollerball. Um, and he thought that New World needed to produce a rival feature uh, that they could release around the same time that would compete. And he landed on an adaptation of the 1956 sci-fi story The Racer, you know, which is about a, 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 a very violent cross-country car race in this far-off dystopian future. And Corman had been impressed with Bartell's second unit work on Big Bad Mama, and he approached him to join the project as director. And that's that's sort of the genesis of what became Death Race 2000. So, um, let's start with you, Doug. What What is it about Death Race 2000 that that makes it so rewatchable for you that you keep wanting to return to it? I think the reasons I return to it have changed since the first time I saw it. I mean, certainly the concept is so strong. You know, the concept, it kind of overtakes everything else to the point where there it feels like there have been unofficial references and tributes to Death Race 2000 constantly since its release. I mean, I remember playing a video game in the late 90s called Carmageddon, which is basically Death Race 2000 turned into a video game. You know, the idea of driving cars around and and getting points for for hitting pedestrians. And you know, that carries on to things like Grand Theft Auto and you know, as we Twisted Metal. And Twisted Metal and things like that. I mean, it it really there's a thorough line in terms of a lot of video game entertainment that that springs from Death Race 2000. But that concept, just that idea of a violent sport that involves death it's funny that all the times that I watched it back in the 90s, I never thought of Rollerball whatsoever, which, I mean, I guess is a testament to its quality and how different that it was from uh, from that as a concept. But in terms of why it's endured for me, it's definitely the humor as opposed to the violence. The violence is what really kind of took me in. And I was a real gorehound when I was a teenager. And the fact that, that this movie not only had this great concept, but also a lot of extreme violence was something that really appealed to me. But it's the humor and specifically the tone that the movie carries that I think has really keeps it a delight. I don't have any particular affinity for a lot of the performers here necessarily. Like David Carradine is someone who I do enjoy in some roles very much so, but I didn't grow up watching Kung Fu or anything like that. So the idea of him, you know, as this charismatic lead, I find him sometimes, and even in this movie sometimes, a little one note and a little bit bland. But the the supporting cast are so much fun here. Particularly, I have to say, Sylvester Stallone, who was really tearing it up in this movie uh, yeah. and is so much fun to watch. And, uh, and I believe Colin he Stone, rewrote a lot of his lines. That's what they say. And, you know, that is another thing. There's a sense of freedom on display here. Even without the knowledge of how these movies kind of come together, you can feel the personalities of the people involved kind of being invoked on it. And I also yeah. wonder, now knowing a little bit more about the making of this, whether the fact that Roger Corman had a particular interest in this material because he wrote the first treatment based on this short story that then they he didn't like it enough. So he had someone, you know, Charles Griffith and, and the other writer write the script. And we know Paul Bartel was involved in some of the writing as well. But the fact that Roger Corman himself wanted to kind of be the, the, the initial writer in it gave him an extra, you know, a, put a little a little bit of extra oomph behind 
the the uh, production because I it seemed like Roger Corman was pretty intimately involved, even driving the cars sometimes on display. But getting away from all the kind of background stuff, it's it the satirical elements. I don't think the satire is very hard hitting necessarily, but it is very funny. And that's and it, this movie has like a lot of great lines, but also just really great situational stuff. I could watch the real Don Steele say anything. I sometimes go back on YouTube and find clips of his radio show because I enjoy his personality so much. Uh, and and there's just so much to. I do think that the movie has some issues in the last 10, 15 minutes when it comes to the Thomasina Payne uh, uh, material that it doesn't really kind of all make sense. And in fact, there's lots of this that doesn't make sense if you think about it for more than a few minutes. But that's a joy too. To me, the, this is the kind of movie, and there's a, a, a bunch of those within that that uh, category of movies that I rewatch, where it's kind of a puzzler in the mind, and that when you're watching it, you're also thinking about it. Okay, if this was realistic, if this was real, would they do this or this? Right? How come are people watching this on television in real time? Why would anyone be on the street during the fucking race? Like, why would anyone in the world? You think you'd be like that? Would be like uh, um, that would be the time period where you wouldn't be working. Uh, you know, hanging banners and shit like that. You would probably just stay home for at least a few days until the race was over. But I just love the 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 comical elements, the satirical elements, and the fact that it's it's violent and and it's just fun. I mean, this is a a movie of the New World pictures of this time period. I think it's the most fun by a significant amount. Yeah, I I think I agree. Uh, William, what about you? I mean, I basically agree with everything Doug said, although. I am maybe a little less concerned, though I've watched the movie less, so maybe I would if I watched it more, uh, at the parts that don't make sense. I've always just taken that as that's part of the movie, you know? And some of the things that you were saying, Doug, I've always thought of those elements maybe as part of the commentary on people. Like, logically, people should be off the streets. But come on, you know some boss somewhere is going, look, you got to get out there and change the thing or you're fucking fired. And so they go out there, then they get hit by the by the guy, you know? It's um, one of the things kind of touched on in the short story that it's based on, where it's just like, oh, there are some areas of the country where people are like, well, they're never going to come here, so we don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. But in here, you know, they're, they're heading to, like, everyone seems to know the general path of where they're headed. I mean, I think it also speaks to, like, cult of personality and the power of celebrity. Yeah, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I can believe that people would become so fervently obsessed with these public figures and this race that they would want to sacrifice themselves uh, to the cause, so to speak. Well, one of the greatest things that happens in this movie is when they bring in the widow of the first person killed during the race <laughs> yes. and are like giving her prizes and things like that. I the wish house they in Acapulco. Leaned... That's right, exactly. I wish they, they leaned on that just a little tiny bit more. I think they're, I mean, I don't know, but the vibe I get is that um, there wasn't an effort to go too into depth on any of these things, right? Um, and, and you know, you guys, I think, were a little more familiar with the making of this movie. I watched some of the stuff that you made available, Doug. The thing that made me just straight up laugh, but I wasn't surprised at, was Roger Corman just saying, yeah, we didn't know how to end the movie. Because <laughs> I'm not saying the ending is great, but it, like, makes sense to me. Like, it, it, and sure. it has always made sense to me. So the idea that someone had to go, I don't know, he kills a president or whatever. They're like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, he kills a president. <laughs> Is that's the most psychotic thing in the world to me because when I if if I were prior to knowing that to think of writing the script I'd start with that like yeah Frankenstein he's a hero but actually he's going to kill the president and then you make up the rest of the script around that but that's the thing they discovered as they were trying to figure out what to do with the fucking movie that's crazy to me it's like actually a, a crazy thing in my head um, but like for for me like at, at I'm just so overwhelmed by the combination here of. 
uh, we've been calling it cartoony. They, they, you know, people refer to it as cartoony, campy, whatever it is. This sense of of uh, caricature of it all mixed with actual, you know, vi- like some of the violence in it is very intense and a dark sort of commentary where like the idea that at some point America would have a president who treated us like his fucking children and he's like a god among men and we like worship him and we all are involved in this like blood sport thing like there, there's so much stuff here that maybe sounds stupid but as i'm watching it i'm like i don't know there's a little bit of something here that feels like you know relevant and i and i think for a movie to reach this level of ridiculous and then also have things where again it's not cutting but i'm like oh that's fair is like i think there's something a little bit incredible about that that makes me like this movie a lot I got something I want to bring up simply because there's nowhere else I'm going to be able to mention it. And I don't hear people talk about it very often. Okay. Which, have you ever heard, there was a pilot made in the early 2000s called Heat Vision and Jack. It was done by Rob Schraub and Dan Harmon, uh, who went on to work on Community and things like that. Uh And it was about a talking motorcycle. Yeah, Um, Jack Black was in it. Jack Black was in it. The, The pilot opens with Ben Stiller doing an introduction to the show. And he ends this introduction by doing the Once again, America, I give you what you want. It's taken right from Death Race 2000. Like, it's, it's supposed to be like a shot-for-shot shot thing. I don't know why, but that's, that's like one of the few overt references that I've seen to things in Death Race 2000 that weren't, you know, remakes and sequels and whatnot. Ta-da! <laughs> I don't have a strong sense, speaking of that, Doug... I don't have a strong sense of outside of, like you said, remakes and weird sequels and shit. I don't have a strong sense of where we see this resonate in the culture, even though there was a time and maybe that time isn't now. So people won't believe this. But there was a time where a lot of people who I thought of even as casual movie fans knew this movie. Like there was a time. I I mean, I, I, I remember seeing Death Race 2000 shirts at the mall. You know, like I remember seeing talking to people who were just getting into, you know, being interested in 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 cult or even like people who were getting into horror. And this is one of the movies that would just come up immediately. Like I felt like a lot of people I knew were about this movie. And yet I can't name a lot of things where I'd say like, oh, clearly this was influenced by Death Race 2000. I, I don't know, like other than the ones that are directly trying to to relate to it you know in in a in a forward facing way i don't know where in the culture i see the reson the resonance of this film you know what i mean i think that and you know this is might be a controversial thing to say you know how when you hear about the remake of a movie and you're like uh that sucks right and then people are like well the re- the original movie will still be there it's not going to hurt the original movie that someone's going to remake it i actually think that the existence of death race hurt the reputation of death race 2000 i think people think of it as all as, as part of the same thing and the fact that death race has continued on with these you know, silly and not very good sequels, uh, and that that they don't have like I'm sure there's a fandom around the, the Death Race movies. I, I think for some reason Paul W S Anderson has a weird kind of cult around him. Anyway, I don't really rank him as a director or his work, and I I feel like it that existing in the world at such a uh, a large scope and like a, a with wide releases with big stars and things like that that it's actually tempered a lot of the enthusiasm for this movie. Huh. The the production of this movie was pretty tumultuous. Uh, 
Bartel butted heads with Corman a lot, and also, you know, to a lesser extent, David Carradine. And I know that the ending was one of the things that they disagreed on, and and Bartel supposedly, without Corman's knowledge, shot the ending the way he wanted, and then Corman found out later and got pissed, but didn't ever say anything to him to his face. <laughs> um, but I can't find what my source was for that. Oh, that is that. That's from the Another Evening with David Carradine. Article okay. by Paul Bartel. Oh, that I was looking at a different source, so that explains why I couldn't find it. Yeah, I think it's on on one of the last pages. I think he uses it as really an example of him and David Carradine's comradeship at that point, because David was the one who was like pushing him, was like I'm tired. Like they were I'm on not, the same page. Yeah, I'm not going to like it, it, they were both kind of in agreement. We're not going to shoot that that other ending with uh, the real Don Steele being murdered and the suggestion i actually kind of love the idea of that alternate ending just the i mean there is a suggestion even in the finished version that yes even though he cancels the race that he still like the bloodlust is still there that the fact that he murders junior at the end is still it's like okay you know he isn't he (laughs) things aren't going to be smooth sailing it's not going to go back to the free elections that he said so easily but the idea that he immediately would instead turn to being just a different version of a dictator and killing his political enemies i think that's kind of clever too yeah and that's also sort of implied with when Thomasina Payne is 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 speaking to the reporters at the end, and she says something to the effect that you know anyone who doesn't get on the same page as us can go live somewhere else. Yes, um, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, the the sense is that, as you said, it's kind of just going to be a different kind of authoritarian regime, <laughs> which again is something that they could have explored in in you know remakes and sequels and whatnot. There is a comic book sequel to uh with some very talented people involved that, that really believe, absolutely there's a eight issue uh comic book sequel that came out in the late 90s uh the only problem with it is and in fact it was drawn i believe by kevin o'neill who did league of extraordinary gentlemen with alan moore wow uh yeah and it was written by like a, a 2000 ad like writer and the only problem with it is that i believe it was designed to be a 10 issue series and only eight issues were ever released so it's incomplete but it is out there i have copies of it i will provide them to everybody <laughs> pat mills was the guy who wrote it yeah he's yes. a, a major player with 2000 ad and it, it continues off like with frankenstein as the lead character and all that and and even with the relationship with um with annie like that it, it is meant to be a follow-up to the film it was that time in the weird that i think it was uh roger corman had his own comic book studio for a brief amount of time we talked about it a little bit a while ago how do we i don't not know, know about this because there was also a little shop of horrors comic uh and in fact i should really investigate it a little bit more because one of the neat things about the little shop of horrors adaptation comic is that in the back of it they had interviews with some of the people involved i gotta see if maybe one of these death race ones had some uh, interviews in there as well that's really cool i'm gonna check that out so what are some of your favorite moments from this movie? Doug, I'll start with you again. I always think about that part where uh, Sylvester Stallone's character, Machine Gun, he's been sent in the wrong direction and he runs into that fisherman who is so genial. Like, he, he, he of course, misidentifies Machine Gun as being Frankenstein, which pisses Machine Gun off. I think he says, you got two seconds to live, which I always think is just a funny thing for him to say. But just the idea, it's like, he knows that this guy's whole like reason for being there is to kill people. And he's so, oh no, you got to go back there. He's not even concerned at all. 
Um, I always wonder if that little insert after this guy gets, of course, <laughs> fucking run, run over, uh, that little insert of the, the wheel turning and all the water turning to blood because his body is underneath the wheel. I always wonder if that maybe is one of those more violent inserts that were forced on it by Roger Corman. But that is a very unique visual. I also, that also brings up uh, something that is a pet peeve of mine, Liam. And you already know this because it came up on our episode of You Don't Know Dick um, with the uh, with the fine folks at the New World Pictures podcast. And we asked them what their favorite Dick Miller performance was. And one of them mentioned Death Race 2000. And that had my spidey sense tingling because I believe, even though it is common knowledge, even to the point where Death... When uh, when uh, Dick Miller passed away, there were obituaries which mentioned Death Race 2000. Dick Miller is not in Death Race 2000. Yeah. He's, credit, he's credited on the IMDb as one of the chicken guys, the guys who, who play chicken with the car. He's not in this movie. I'm telling you right now, I've watched it many, many times. He's none of those people. He does yeah. not appear. I listened to the commentaries with Roger Corman during that sequence. None of them are saying, hey, that's Dick Miller, or mention his name at all. It's just somebody accidentally, like maybe in a old version, it looks kind of like it's an older fellow there who looks a little bit like him, and they just decided to put that to the IMDb. But listen to a person who is involved in a Paul Bartel podcast and hosts a Dick Miller <laughs> theme. <Yeah. one. laughs> he is not in Death Race 2000. Yeah, I, he looks a little like Dick Miller, but he looks too old to be Dick Miller at Absolutely. that point in time. Mm-hmm. Doug, I wanted to comment on two things you said. One was about where the there's that uh, where the blood is shooting out from under the car in the scene you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. I remember in the making of they specifically mentioned that as a as a reshoot. Uh, in fact, the guy who had, did the reshoot, who was the I guess he was the second director or whatever. He, Louis he, Teague. He was like he said. Uh, 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 Paul had shot it a little soft and Roger insisted we make it a little more hard. And I was like, oh my God, what a weird way <laughs> yeah. to describe that, <laughs> that scene. That is very bizarre, uh, yes. But, but the other thing you had said, I remember early on, was that um, when you were talking about your love for the film, and I had meant to say something and I, and I didn't get a chance to, was that you don't have like a deep love for uh, David Carradine as a performer. Like right. that he's not one of your favorite actors. And um, I wanted to both agree with you, but then point out that for me, this is actually one of my favorite performances he gives. And I think like there's something about the quiet disdain and not so quiet disdain that Frankenstein has for everyone around him. That like I kind of love like I don't know what yeah. it is about. He's his... aloof, but there's also something kind of like noble. Like he's yes. like a noble stoic. Yeah, he's he it it, it, it kind of comes across like he is playing a role, but also um, even the first time I saw this movie, I thought there's something more going on with that Frankenstein guy. You know, long before I knew about the hand grenade, lol. Um, <laughs> I I knew there was something up with how he was interacting with his. Uh, mechanic or his navigator rather who is clearly a plant and all this stuff like i i just all there's always been something about his performance in this that i thought was very well done and really interesting and really stood out to me among his performances and for me um there's a couple of scenes where he is alone with the navigator and he's kind of like quizzing her in a way yeah and you yeah, know that right. he knows like okay <laughs> he's like it's weird how did they know we were here maybe it wasn't because i fucking love those scenes that part where he has her go in front of the car and, uh-huh. as opposed to going around it and he revs the engine <laughs> yeah he, he does have kind of a genial assholeness about him <laughs> and the whole thing the whole idea like that 
I mean, I'm assuming, like, I don't know. This was just an offhand comic that Corman made, right, about the way the ending played out, right? But assuming that comment was accurate, then does at what point did they decide about the hand grenade aspect? Sure, right? All? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that he was going to kill the president with the hand grenade, because that seems to be in a lot of scenes in the movie. And if that wasn't decided upon ahead of time, then his performance kind of makes less sense. Like... I just think, at least this time watching it, it really stood out to me that from the beginning, I believe he's like kind of testing her. It feels like he's kind of testing the waters with her and is kind of like, just leave me alone so I can go kill the fucking president, you know? And, <laughs> and the idea that somewhere midway through filming, they were like, I don't know, maybe he kills the president. is like, no, man, that's the, that's a threat uh, to the whole movie. But I'm now sure Liam, they filmed it out of order. You are now bringing up like it, it all the things that, they don't hurt my enjoyment in this whatsoever. But all these no. questions that I have in regards to, A, I don't fully understand his motivation for wanting to kill the president. But you don't really need one, right? We know the president's evil. You can just kill him, whatever. But, like, this thing is mo- sometimes being filmed and sometimes not. The belief that he's lost his arm and his leg and, like, he's been horribly scarred. It's, it's like, d- why did they make that up? And... Like, has he not been involved in crashes? Has all that been made up? And at the end, when he's just driving without a mask on at all, just showing his face to everybody, like, how are people supposed to respond to that? Just very confusing. I think I just find his character a little inconsistent. But the other thing about David Carradine in this movie is that he still kind of feels like he's hanging on to that acting style from Kung Fu. Liam, we have a a movie that we both enjoy called The Long Goodbye. And David Carradine is in that movie for like 30 seconds. Do you remember this part of David Carradine in The Long Goodbye? No, I don't. He's in the prison cell with Elliot Gould right at the beginning of the movie when he gets put in prison briefly uh, and before he gets bailed out. And he's in it just for like a very short part, but he's so relaxed and charismatic. And just like in that article that we'll talk about in just a little bit, very hippie-ish, right? And like, I know that that's what David Carradine is actually like. But I think Kung Fu destroyed his brain a little bit, and it made it so he had to act in this very kind of stoic way. When I really want to see him more like the Woody Guthrie performance that he does in, uh, I think it's Bound for Glory, where it's a lot more relaxed, right? I just want to see David Carradine relaxed be an asshole that way. You're, 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 you're crazy. The Wing Serpent. You're, you're literally a crazy person. And Cue the Wing Serpent, he's relaxed. I get it, but I love I, him in this. I like this. I think this is a good performance. It works for this I don't character. think it's terrible. It's just... I, I don't disagree, William, but it's also fun to see him in stuff like Sunny Boy, yeah, for example. Yeah. The thing I was going to say to you, Doug, is that um, the whole idea is that there, there's no one Frankenstein, right? He is one of a whole line of Frankensteins. Yeah. And but at least we know this is the one that has been at least racing somewhat recently, isn't it? No. Every year they murder the old Frankenstein and they bring in a new Frankenstein. That's why he wants to kill the president. Every year there's a new Frankenstein who puts on the outfit and races, and then when the race is over, they just kill him and bring in another Frankenstein next year. I, I have to be honest. I think that's entirely queer, though. I, I, I've seen this movie so many times, I did not realize that whatsoever. Though it does clear up a lot of my that's <laughs> questions. What he, that's what he says to her it, when he does the big reveal of who he is. He says, I am one of... These and he says, I am the last of my line because I'm going to kill the president. That's what right. he says. Interesting. So that's I mean, that's what he you know, that's the idea is that he he that the guy who we know as Frankenstein has never raced before. Every year it's been a different Frankenstein. And some of those Frankensteins were in 
terrible accidents apparently and they just were like no it's fine you know he's got a new arm and a new leg and whatever where it's like oh no that means those frankensteins they just fucking died actually you mean mean his obviously perfect legs yeah (laughs) which i love i will say this one of the parts of the movie that for me is fun that i don't think it's supposed to be fun is i find nothing at all uh, sexually attractive about David Carradine, so her her being like your perfect legs, I'm like ah, ah, it's it's it might as well be a gag, and I know it's not supposed to be, but for me it's a gag, and I love it. I laugh every time. He's what I would call '70s handsome in a way where it's a little hard sometimes to understand why necessarily, yeah. but he is very charismatic, and also I mean I do say I, I, you know I've been tearing in his performance a little bit. I do want to say that his interaction with Wendy Bartell, Paul Bartell's sister, playing. Laurie, like the leader of his fan club, I love that sequence, and I think he's so yeah, good in it. Yeah, just the idea is like, what you, you love me because I kill people. I just think that that I wish that like all those moments where they're trying to to, to kind of uh, flesh out the world, they do such a good job, and that feels yeah. as close to something that was more pure Paul Bartel than anything in the movie, which might be because his sister is there. <laughs> I do feel like though, for me. I don't know that because that's something else you said earlier that that I wasn't sure that I was vibing with in that I don't know that I maybe it's because I appreciate more of the silliness of this movie, even though I like the serious parts as well. I don't know that I need more of the world. I feel like if I had too much more of the context, then I would be forced to think the same way that you were doing Doug of, of more seriously about how the movie doesn't make sense whereas with the little bit of context I have I'm like it's not real that doesn't matter I don't care the 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 the, the, dot, the, the numbers don't add up and I'm okay with that you know it doesn't <laughs> yeah, really bother me it's more fun out. to just kind of like fill in the blanks yourself yeah totally um one one thing about this movie that always cracks me up is towards the beginning when the race begins they come out of the link, what is supposed to be the Lincoln Tunnel into what should be New Jersey, but it is very definitely not New Jersey. <laughs> it's California. Oh, yes. <laughs> but just as somebody who has driven through the Lincoln Tunnel too many times to count, like it, it's just very amusing to me. <laughs> it, also, when I first saw this movie, it was the first thing that occurred to me that this was not going to be a very serious movie, is when they come out of the, the quote-unquote Lincoln Tunnel, and I'm like, Oh, they're in California. And I'm like, oh, okay. The this is not. Hills this is a, Yeah, this is not going to be that kind of movie. I just need this to might, let go. This might that. shock you, but as a Canadian, I didn't notice any of that at all. <laughs> all America, <laughs> America looks the same to me. Oh, I do want to bring up just briefly that Mary Warnoff is in this film. Uh, this must be yes. the first time that uh, Paul Bartel and Mary Warnoff are, you know, united like this, uh, even though they don't have any scenes together. But the fact that he's directing her, it. it this is going to be a long-standing partnership, a very uh, fruitful collaboration between the two of them, and she's wonderful here as well. Even though, and I had no idea. She's so again, good. She's so good. I had no idea that she did not know how to drive when she was making this, and that none of the driving scenes feature her whatsoever. Uh, and that then ties into one other thing that I just have thought about on the, my most recent couple of watches of Death Race 2000 is that one of the things that makes the driving in this so fun and exciting is that they don't rely on any blue screen work, right? There's lots of, you know, they, they there's lots of drivers being towed and, and there's a lot of kind of shots uh, just showing the, the, the sky behind them with wind blowing in their faces. But think about how, how kind of, even with all the undercranking and all the, the attempts to make it look faster than it actually is and the futuristic goofy looking cars. But if this was just had like a ton of blue screen stuff when they were driving, I think it would just take me out of it. 
Yeah, it wouldn't work. And there, there's some really wild and dangerous stunt work. Oh, too. yes. Like, <laughs> uh, what comes to mind immediately is that sequence where, you know, the resistance pilots are trying to like bomb Frankenstein as he's driving. And that mm-hmm. that plane gets really close to that <laughs> it sure car. Does. It very much does. It reminds me like in that article um, that another evening with David uh, Carradine article, which, again, we'll, we'll also uh, put that in, in some of the show notes today is they mentioned that when they were designing the cars, Roger Corman didn't want to put roll cages in them. And then Paul Bartel told him, it's like, Crazy. these stunt drivers are not going to drive those cars if they don't have roll cages. And, then and the like, actual actors were doing a bit of driving as that's well. That's right. It's just All insane the... to me. And to Roger Corman that... himself was doing a bunch of the driving yeah. when it was too dangerous for the rest of them. I mean, it, it's probably made to look a little more dangerous because of the undercranking. But what Paul Bartel said in that article is like, so I got him to spend the extra $50 per car to put the roll cage in. In that audio interview where I guess an Australian man catches Paul Bartel at dinner and then conducts a 20-minute interview, (laughs) which, by the way, is the most psychotic thing I've ever heard in my life. But in that audio interview, he asked him, he's like, you know, I know they were only going like 40 miles an hour, but, you know, it seems kind of dangerous. Were there any accidents? And Paul Bartel, like, dismisses the – no, of course. No, it's fine. And I was like, what? Like, it seemed kind of crazy to me, like – that not that there weren't accidents, but he his response to the question is like, no, of course not. Everything was good. We were fine. And I'm like, I wouldn't say of course. I mean, <laughs> even driving 20 miles an hour with actors behind the wheel, something could fucking go wrong, you know. So the idea that like, no, why would there? Why would it be? No, we're good to go. I'm like, yeah, no way. Something probably was kind of fucked up. Actually. And he went on to make another car movie right after this too, right? I mean, it's not, I don't think it's a ridiculous question at all. One thing that I think is interesting is now that we know from reading that article that there was all this kind of conflict between Paul Bartel and David Carradine, and that this was something, you know, to the point where David Carradine almost got thrown out of the movie. All of the retrospectives and all the making of and all the commentaries about it, no one mentions it. Never heard it once ever until I read it in this article. And I'm like, you just wonder how much of that sort of thing occurs that gets just lost to time once the movie's out into the world and makes a bunch of money for everybody. Okay, so we've alluded to it a bunch already, so I think we might as well just talk about it. Um, There's a really wonderful article that Paul Bartel wrote for Take One magazine in 1978, I believe. Uh, Doug, correct me if I absolutely get, get yeah, yeah, yeah. I yank it um, off of archive.org. It's, <laughs> it's a it's a, a a profile of sorts that that Bartel did of David Carradine, um, paying tribute to him as an actor and a person, and it just fills my heart with joy because he is so complimentary towards David Carradine. It's very clear that Paul Bartel thought very highly of him. Um, and he kind of delves him into their their history uh, and sort of the uh, kind of the, the, the tension that initially characterized their working relationship at the start of production. Uh, but eventually it developed into this... Um, really beautiful friendship of mutual respect and admiration. And I just want to say, Paul Bartel talks about how David Carradine is the only actor he allows to kiss him on the lips. It's an amazing And I think that's so cute. It is. It's very cute. I love... Talk about the the and I mean again I, I I don't want to make it seem like I'm blowing my own horn here because I I was able to track down this article I didn't know this existed when I found it I was like 
This is the perfect thing for this podcast. This is an article written by Paul Bartel, speaking very like like personally about his relationship with David Carradine and speaking at length about their experience on this movie where, you know, again, they had a real difficulty at first. David Carradine was, was difficult to work with and then almost got kicked out of the movie and replaced by Lee Majors, which did not happen, obviously. But just, the, you know, learning a little bit also just about who Paul Bartel was at this time, because I don't have a lot of kind of knowledge about him as a person at this time period. You know, the idea that he didn't have a TV for a long time, that he only got one to watch movies, that he had a collection of Polish movie posters in his apartment, that he was trying to put together a trailer compilation of all the New World pictures at that time. I mean, just these unbelievably cool and interesting insights to him as yeah. a person. And then going on to have, you know, writing so... Per and, you know, this isn't like a an obituary... This is, you know, this is someone who was just talking about, this is my friend, he's had some troubles, but he's someone that I have so much respect for. And, you know, this is three years after the release of Death Race 2000. Just a, a, the kind of thing that you just wouldn't really necessarily see these days. And what a, what a wonderful thing to be able to experience. Yeah, and I mean, he, he talks about David Carradine coming to visit him. And they just kind of hang out at his house and, and talk and catch up. And, uh... Something he talks about um, that I I found very heartwarming and lovely is that when when David Carradine was like briefly kind of out of out of the film, uh, he wrote Paul Bartel this very heartfelt apology note, and that you know he ba basically imploring him to allow him to to rejoin the project and continue on with production. Uh, and it's just, it's the kind of like humble, humbleness that you don't hear about very often mm -hmm. with actors. Uh, and I know that like at this time, Carradine didn't have a whole lot of film work under his belt. He was mostly known for Kung Fu, but still like I, it, it, it I, I gained more respect for Carradine after reading about it. Yeah, most definitely. He, he, I think I found him more interesting afterwards. You know, it, just the idea that I just maybe I don't know enough about David Carradine outside of the fact that he had a very unique ending to his life, um, and the fact that you know it he had gained so much kind of late career status with his appearance in Kill Bill. When I was getting into movies in the 1990s. I thought of him not as the guy from Kung Fu. I thought of him as the guy from Kung Fu, The Legend Continues, for the most part. And then, of course, I would see him in certain cult movies like Q the Winged Serpent, things along those lines. But also, he was just in a lot of low-budget garbage at that time period. And so I didn't really rate him as an actor because I didn't think of him as someone who could give really strong performances. So it was then, you know, discovering more of his work. I, got a, I learned a better appreciation. But in terms of him as a person... You know, I think I know of him as the kind of the legacy actor with his brother Keith and Robert Carradine and, of course, his father. And it's it. I just never really considered him as sort of such a big star at that time that he could even have that level of attitude and that he might be questioning whether, <laughs> you know, the, the first role he takes after leaving his incredibly successful TV series should be a low-budget Roger Corman movie about killing people with cars. Uh, it just seems all of it's this kind of big, wonderful question mark about him and his career at this time period. I mean, thank goodness he's in Death Race 2000 because if he wasn't, that movie might not ever have been made. William, do you, did you read this article? Nah. <laughs> it's okay. Well, I only brought it up out. like all the fucking time about how great it was. 
Yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of chat in the in the chat thing. I didn't actually read. I'm just putting that out there. It's good That's to good because I said really, some very unpleasant really things. Really care about, about you. what we have to say. I mean, I just didn't have time. You guys were talking a lot. I was like, I don't have time for all this. I mean, <laughs> I watched all the videos that were in the folder, but I, you know, I was listen like, to the commentaries. Uh, I did not listen to them. <laughs> I didn't listen to them either. It, it, it's okay. I, I only listened to the Roger Corman, Mary Warnoff one, and it is delightful, but it does not. It is both of them watching the first the movie for the first time in, in her case, probably 20 years. And in Roger Corman's case, it's probably at least 10. And he has a lot of memories, like unique memories about it that are, that are interesting. But her, her entire response is, wow, this is good. Like, this is way better than I remember that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. One thing I did do is I read the short story, The Racer, um, that... that inspired this movie now it does not feature any of the characters from the movie like frankenstein is not in it it really is just the concept of the cars on on like a high-speed race across the country and people killing people for points but then again like i said at the beginning of my memories of this the concept is the thing that hooks you in the first place so you can see why roger corman was like this is an amazing concept now let's write an actual good movie around it so is there anything else about this movie that we haven't talked about yet that you guys really want to touch on well, I mean, we've alluded pretty heavily towards Death Race, the remake of this and its various sequels. And even the fact that in 2017, there was another sequel, like a direct sequel called Death Race 2050, um, that was produced by Roger Corman once again as Malcolm McDowell in it. I have, uh, I've seen Death Race. I've seen none of the sequels and I have not seen Death Race 2050. And, you know, this all sounds ridiculous, right? Of course, I love Death Race 2000. Why wouldn't I pursue this? Because I know, I know that it's going to be exactly what I would have feared Death Race 2000 is before seeing it and uh, and have yeah. none of the, the, the kind of cleverness. Maybe I'm wrong, you know, and if, if a listener is like, you know, I love the Death Race series, maybe one of the sequels, the straight to video sequels are really great. Maybe Death Race 2050 is terrific and I just don't know much about it. Uh, please tell us and let me know and I'll check them out immediately. But I have to say there's very little that has been pushing me to check any of those out. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. It just... It all just strikes me as very joyless and not really understanding anything about what makes the original Death Race 2000 work as a movie. Um, but yeah, I, just to reiterate what you said, I guess if anyone's listening and they really, really want to advocate for any of the sequels or some of the later kind of reboots, remakes and so forth, uh, definitely you know, reach out to us and, and make your case because, you know, I'm totally open to having my mind changed. I I mean, Death Race is such... I, I unfortunately had a friend who, like I said, advocated for Death Race and insisted I watch it. And so I did and found it utterly unsatisfying. And then I let him talk me into watching another one of these, like, whatever sequel. I don't even know which one it was. It wasn't 2050. And so when the trailer came out for 2050, I just thought, I'm not being fooled again. You know, even though it, it's different, right? It's not the same as Death Race. Um, I just couldn't give it a chance. So I, I, I kind of thinking about it now, I'm like, I don't know, maybe I could sometime, but that's the sort of thought that I never have. It. Like, I'll have it right now. Like I could see giving death race 2050 a chance. And now that will never come back into my brain again. And I will never watch it. It's just not going to happen. I'm a lot more likely to see the 2050 than any of the other death race movies, by the way. Sure, so death yeah. race came out in 20, 2008. Then death yeah. race two came out in 2010 death race three inferno in 2013 and death race beyond anarchy in 2018, which came out, after Death Race 2050, Jesus. which came out 
in 2017. So there's a lot, you know, this is all part of the Death Race 2000 universe. Maybe we can uh, enter a multiverse into the next one and bring all these characters together, get Danny Trejo in the, anyway. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 you know what, I'm, there's a part of me, maybe I will check out Death Race 2050 simply because of the Roger Corman connection. And there must be at least an attempt to capture the tone. The director of it, do you remember that movie from the late 70s just called The Car? From 1977? Yes. Yeah. Fucking, the guy followed up Death Race 250, 2050, sorry, the director, with an unofficial sequel to The Car. Uh, what? Yeah, it's called The Car Road to Revenge from 2019. He decided oh. to make a sequel. Even has Ronnie Cox in it. Um, I, I don't know. Wow. So at least the guy seems to have... You know, an affinity for these kind of movies. Maybe he could do a whole bunch of unofficial sequels. Like, <laughs> I'd really, I'd really like to see, I'd really like to see a Ghost House sequel. Like, yeah. but where would it fit in the La Casa series? I don't know. <laughs> well, that about wraps up our discussion of Death Race 2000. On the next episode of Bar Tell Me Something Good, we will be discussing uh, another Bartell and Carradine team up: the 1976 comedy film Cannonball. Which I I think I only saw that once a long time ago. Haven't revisited it, so that should be interesting. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I don't know if I've ever seen it. Uh, it. It seems like something I would, right? Oh, it's David Carradine and Paul Bartel, you know, the creators of Death Race 2000. Like, the very next year, they came back together, made another movie with another great cast, including Robert Carradine, Mary Warnov is in it again, Garrett Graham is in it, Dick Miller is in this one. So, I mean, I can't believe that I wouldn't have seen it, but I don't think I have. So, I have to admit, I'm I'm curious and excited. And, I mean, it's got its own extended universe as well, if you include all the Cannonball Run movies that came out. Yeah. I mean, they're not really, like, related. They're no, just I know. kind of all based on the same concept. Mm-hmm. But yes, many, many car f- films with the na- word cannonball in the title. <laughs> I haven't seen any of them. Really? I, I'm i partial to Cannonball Run 2 just because it has one of my all-time faves, Charles Nelson Riley, in it. And it doesn't matter, but... Liam, because you're going to see the Cannonball Run movies because Jackie Chan is in them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I know. It's just funny. Like they... <laughs> Oh, and your favorite Dom DeLuise. That's right. Your favorite oh, Dom DeLuise. <laughs> I love Dom DeLuise. Fuck you, Liam. What is there to like? Tell me one thing that is enjoyable about Dom I just think he is very uh, festive. Festive. You know what I like about what I like about Dom DeLuise is how much Burt Reynolds loves him. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Like Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, Charles Nelson Riley, Charles During, they're all like BFFs and have been for a very long time. And I kind of just I love their friendship. I have a certain amount of love for the terrible, unofficial third Cannonball Run movie, Speed Zone, featuring John Candy, as well as most most of the cast of SCTV, all filmed in Canada. It's got Matt Frewer, Eugene Levy, lots of, like, all these (laughs) Smothers Brothers are in it. It's absolutely awful, but I watched it over and over. I think it's because there are breasts in it. I think that's why I watched it when I was a kid. (laughs) Who doesn't love boobs? (laughs) All right. (laughs) Time to wrap things up. (laughs) I'm just so bummed that Dom DeLuise even came up that I'm just going to be in a bad mood for the rest of the night. Liam, we're going to, again, we're going to watch those movies and we're going to have to see him and talk about it. And I'm just going to really, complain. You should the watch time. the episode of Dinner for Five with Dom DeLuise, Charles Nelson Riley, Burt Reynolds, and Charles Durning because it's. Super Liam just fun. got introduced to Charles Nelson Riley recently, too. Wait, what do you mean just got introduced? I'm sorry. Sorry, Liam. I don't mean to mischaracterize you, but when we watched Match Game, was that your first time seeing Charles Nelson Riley in something? It might have 
been, actually. Yeah, I figured it was when we were Well, I mean, that's what he's best known for, so, like, I'm glad you started there. And there's that one X-Files episode, too. Oh, yes. Well, there's... Okay, so there's the X-Files episode, Jose Chung's From Outer Space, where he plays Mm. the writer Jose Chung. But he also returns to that role in Millennium, which was Chris Carter's other show. He plays uh, Jose Chung in an episode of Millennium. With Lance um, Henderson. And I think he won an Emmy. Well... Did he win an Emmy for X-Files? I think he won an Emmy for X-Files. Yes, Lance Henriksen is also in Millennium. But Also, Liam, anyway. Weird Al has a song about Charles Nelson Reilly uh, that you should really he check does. out. <laughs> Actually, this is now a Charles Nelson Reilly podcast. I'm sorry. I mean, I would for sure do a Charles Nelson Reilly podcast. I, like, I love I'm, Charles I'm, Nelson Reilly. I think he's an inc- he was an incredible person. Yeah, absolutely. And just a real fucking... About, though? Just the same thing we're talking about here. Someone who's uh, openly gay in Hollywood in the 1960s When it was and 70s. not okay yeah. to be so. But um, you want to talk about... I'm just scrolling to IMDb right oh, now. Oh, his work? Oh, I'm not interested in any yeah, of Yeah, it's not very good. <laughs> Doug, have you ever seen that really fucked up homophobic um, wrestling movie that he's in? Yes, I Body have slam. seen Body Slam. Body Slam, yes, which I had to endure at one of the real Rumble weekends at Mahoning. When I was slinging merch for Rough Cut, and like yeah, it felt awful. so gross to I like watching Charles Nelson Riley like endure homophobic jokes for a paycheck while all these chuds at the drive-in were laughing along. Yeah, with you know, the, it's like, kind of interesting. The only things on this list I'm familiar with are All Dogs Go to Heaven and Rock a Doodle. <laughs> he doesn't have a great. Uh, f- like filmography, but I mean, he wasn't primarily known for being an actor. But he's got a lot of TV work you might enjoy, Liam. Yeah, you know, he has uh, an amazing one man show that is on that you can watch on Blu Ray called "The Life of Riley." He went through some sh- real shit in his life. So, Doug, where can listeners find you on online? Well, you can always find me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. But if you want to watch, uh, watch. <laughs> if you want to check out other episodes of Bar Tell Me Something Good, you can find the entire archive over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. Or if you want to check out the latest episodes, they always appear over at cinepunks.com. You can find Cinepunks on all your social media uh, platforms of choice. And of course, there's also wonderful podcasts you can check out, including some new ones over at Cinepunks, as well as some amazing writing by uh, Liam and Adriana and others over on that site. But yeah, and you can also find Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. L-I-E-M. That's the first time I ever tried to spell the Liam part. Liam Rules, R-U-L-Z. But I'll let Liam actually uh, come up with his own plugs at this point. (laughs) Sorry. I thought you were covering all of them. I stopped paying attention. I was thinking about doing it, and then I'm like, I'm running out of steam here. Usually Liam goes first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What did you say? What did you say already? Like, what do I say? (laughs) I mentioned Cinepunks. It's okay. I mentioned Cinepunks is where you can find the latest episodes and that there's great writing and other podcasts there. Of course, if people want to dive into our archive, Doug, they should head over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. I did also mention this part. Well, okay. <laughs> Look, then what else well, is yeah, there to might say? Well just not talk. Don't bother. Just actually, Doug could you actually just do a, a quick um, a quick plug for the other shows on the Cinema Smorgasbord? Sure. <clears throat> 
Uh, well, Doug, obviously people should check out some of our other shows on the Cinema Smorgasbord collective of shows, collection, uh, whether that's Joe Dawowski, Praising Kane, uh, whatever happened to Vic Diaz. Um, we do our own stunts, our Jackie Chan focused podcast, a whole variety of shows over there. Uh, George Kennedy is my co-pilot. Just lots of topics. Many of them actor focused, but not all of them, Doug. Not all of them. That's it. That's all I got. And finally, you can find me, Adriana, on Twitter at E-A-D-X-B-B. And that's all for this episode of Bartell Me Something Good. Once again, we'll be covering Cannonball next time. So join us. <laughs> join us next time. <laughs> Say goodnight, everybody. <laughs> goodnight, goodnight everybody. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.